Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 8th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Oklahoma's Attorney General dropped all but a single claim against Johnson & Johnson and Teva Pharmaceutical Industries Limited in a closely watched lawsuit alleging the drug makers helped fuel the U.S. opioid epidemic. The move came ahead of an upcoming May 28 trial, the first in the United States to result from roughly 2,000 lawsuits seeking to hold manufacturers of painkillers responsible for the epidemic. The Attorney General dropped the claims after announcing a $270 million settlement last week with the OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma, along with the wealthy Sackler family who owned it. The 2017 lawsuit accused the three companies of engaging in deceptive marketing that downplayed the addictive risk from opioids while overstating their benefits. The Sacklers were not defendants in the case, and the companies deny wrongdoing. Oklahoma will now litigate only a public nuisance claim against Johnson & Johnson and Teva, but was dropping five other claims, including that they violated the Oklahoma Medicaid False Claims Act. Dropping those additional claims would not impact the amount of damages the state is seeking. The Attorney General had been asking for more than $20 billion before Purdue's settlement. The decision to refocus the case around the single claim that the companies caused a public nuisance will obviate efforts by the companies to delay the upcoming trial. It will also transform what was to be a televised jury trial into a non-jury one in which a state court judge will decide the case. More than 1,600 other opioid-related lawsuits are consolidated before a federal judge in Ohio. Other cases, including Oklahoma's, are pending in state courts. And in another opioid litigation development, one of the plaintiffs is now pursuing the Sackler family owners for Purdue Pharma damages. Purdue is a privately held pharmaceutical company owned principally by descendants of Mortimer and Raymond Sackler. The company is the target of the opioid litigation stampede. In 2007, the company paid out one of the largest fines ever levied against a pharmaceutical firm for mislabeling its product, OxyContin. And three executives were found guilty of criminal charges. OxyContin became the company's blockbuster drug. Purdue had increased its earnings from a few billion dollars in 2007 to 31 billion by 2016 and increased again to 35 billion by 2017. Purdue Pharma is owned by one of the America's richest families with a collective net worth of 13 billion dollars. The Massachusetts Attorney General Mara Healy's lawsuit filed against the company in June was revised now to include new allegations. The suit is now the first by a state to try and attempt to hold the Sackler family members personally responsible for contributing to the opioid epidemic. The change of strategy was perhaps in response to rumors that Purdue is considering filing for bankruptcy protection to limit its damages. Healy's complaint cites records to argue that family members, including Purdue's former president, Richard Sackler, 
personally directed deceptive opioid marketing. They did so even after Purdue and three executives in, the two, in 2007 pleaded guilty to federal charges related to the misbranding of OxyContin and agreed to pay a total of $634.5 million in penalties. But the Sacklers say nothing in the complaint supports allegations they personally took part in efforts to mislead doctors and the public about the benefits and addictive risks of opioids. The Sacklers claim their role was limited to that of typical corporate board members who participate in routine votes to ratify the management staffing and budget proposals. The WCAB rejected the administrative director's efforts to limit documents allowed to be sent to IMR. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Bowen versus the County of San Bernardino. Jocelyn Bowen injured her neck and right shoulder while working for the County of San Bernardino. She was prescribed and used Norco to control her symptoms of pain since 2015 when IMR issued a final determination letter finding that the prescribed Norco was medically necessary and appropriate. At the time, the IMR rationale was that the injured worker reported functional improvement and improvement in pain with medications. The following month, the PTP again prescribed Norco based upon the same clinical observations. UR again rejected the December RFA, which was again appealed to IMR. But the second IMR reviewer was a family practice physician, and this time IMR upheld the UR denial. The first 2015 IMR final determination letter was not included in the information given to the second IMR reviewer. The second reviewer noted that Although the physician showed an improvement in the level of function with medication use, there was no documentation of any specific objective functional improvements with the use of Norco. Applicant timely appealed the second IMR determination, and the work comp judge granted the appeal, finding that the IMR determination contained plainly erroneous findings. The work comp judge ordered the dispute to a new IMR reviewer in the specialty of orthopedic surgery, pain management, or physical medicine and rehabilitation. But the WCJ also indicated that the new IMR reviewer should review the previous IMR determination. Then the former acting administrative director objected to the work comp judge's instruction that the new IMR reviewer should review a previous IMR determination approving the prescription for narco. The AD argued that review of a prior IMR final determination may detract from the independence of the new review. The administrative director agreed that the IMR reviewers should be in a specialty more appropriately matched to applicant's diagnosis and submitted the matter for a new IMR determination. The WCAB rejected the limits on information to the new IMR placed by the administrative director. It used a court of appeal decision that held that IMR determinations are subject to meaningful review. As part of the new IMR, applicant may resubmit the November 23, 2015 IMR final determination 
and all of the PTP reports to the IMR reviewer. And now our crime report. Fresnius Medical Care operates more than 40 production sites on all continents. Its largest plants are in the U.S., Ogden, Utah, and Concord, California, also in Germany and Japan. A division of Fresenius Medical Care in North America, known as Fresenius Kidney Care, is the worldwide leader in the treatment of renal disease and an innovative leader in kidney disease research. It claims to serve over 190,000 patients in over 2,400 facilities nationwide. Fresenius Medical Care has just agreed to pay about $231 million to resolve investigations by the Department of Justice and the SEC into violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Fresenius admitted it paid bribes to publicly employed health and government officials to obtain or retain business in Angola and Saudi Arabia, as well as in Morocco, Spain, Turkey, and countries in West Africa. Prosecutors say Fresenius doled out millions of dollars in bribes across the globe to gain a competitive advantage in the medical services industry, profiting to the tune of over $140 million. To resolve the case, Fresenius entered into a non-prosecution agreement with the department, and it agreed to pay a total criminal penalty of nearly $85 million. Fresenius settled a related matter with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and will pay $147 million in disgorgement and prejudgment interest to the SEC. It was a busy month for the Monterey County District Attorney who reports two convictions for uninsured employers. Vanessa Lizeth Aguilar, a 37-year-old Soledad resident, was sentenced to three years probation for failing to carry workers' compensation insurance. Ms. Aguilar was ordered to pay a $3,500 fine, and she faces up to one year in county jail and additional fines if she violates her probation. She owns Golden Essentials Delivery, a cannabis delivery service in Salinas, which has eight employees. While she initially did have workers' comp insurance, her policy with the state compensation insurance fund expired in March 2018. The following June, Monterey County District Attorney investigators asked Ms. Aguilar to provide verification that she had workers' comp insurance. She conceded that she did not have a policy, which is a misdemeanor under Labor Code Section 3700.5. The district attorney filed criminal charges last October. And also this month, the Monterey County District Attorney announced that Jorge Luis Cavallo Padilla, a 46-year-old seaside resident, was sentenced to three years probation and ordered to pay a $1,000 fine for failing to carry workers' comp insurance. He faces up to one year in county jail and additional fines if he violates his probation. Last June, the Contractor State Licensing Board investigated a report of unlicensed construction at a property located in Carmel-by-the-Seas. Investigators observed two men constructing a wooden deck behind the residence. Mr. Padilla was identified as the contractor on the project and admitted that he was not a licensed contractor 
and also admitted that he had hired a worker to help with the deck. The district attorney's workers' compensation fraud unit charged Mr. Padilla with unlicensed contracting and not having workers' compensation insurance. And in regulatory news, a coalition of influential California business groups says it will support a bill that would codify the California Supreme Court Dynamex decision that placed strict limits on classifying workers as independent contractors. If the legislation includes additional exemptions for certain professions, the letters were signed by the California Chamber of Commerce, California Retailers Association, and California Building Industry Association, among others. They asked for broader exemptions for professionals beyond those already agreed to for doctors and insurance agents. The coalition also seeks a broader exemption for workers who prefer to control their own schedule. This would include consultants, travel agents, and truck, taxi, and gig economy drivers. And exempting short-term projects and businesses and business-to-business contracts. The group's new position drew cautious praise from the bill's author and supporters who called it a step forward. But the bill's author called the proposed amendments too broad adding that she will continue to work industry by industry to find appropriate situations for additional amendments and exemptions. She named hairdressers and real estate agents as industries she is open to including and added that she is interested but not sold on short-term projects. The support if amended position demonstrates the tightrope the chamber and business groups must walk in the Dynamex debate. Employers argue the current version of the bill would not only hurt the business model of a broad swath of industries and billions of venture capital dollars that are increasingly invested in businesses, but also hinder California as a national leader in the innovation economy. The New Mexico Medical Cannabis Advisory Board voted 4-0 to reaffirm its support for adding opioid use disorder to a long list of qualifying conditions for medical marijuana. The list currently includes cancer, chronic pain, and post-traumatic stress disorder. The Medical Cannabis Advisory Board chairwoman cited the annual death toll from opioid-related overdoses in New Mexico estimated at 305 people in 2017, and indications that marijuana reduces reliance on opioids. The referred to the new list as a harm reduction program. About 70,000 patients are enrolled in New Mexico's medical marijuana program. The program was initiated in 2007 and has grown as the list of qualifying conditions has expanded. Brown said, there is no strict deadline for the health department to decide whether to add opioid use to the list of qualifying conditions for marijuana access. A health department spokesman said they are also considering advisory board recommendations to expand medical marijuana access to patients diagnosed with autism and those suffering from degenerative neurological disorders, including Alzheimer's disease. The advisory board separately recommended expanding the medical marijuana program to people suffering from diagnosable problems with alcohol, stimulants, 
hallucinogens, and a variety of prescription drugs. A petition was rejected to automatically provide medical marijuana access to people aged 65 and over. Several weeks ago, the Office of Administrative Law approved FEHC changes to the Family Care and Medical Leave and Pregnancy Disability Notice, adding information about the new Parent Leave Act. This is now called Family Care and Medical Leave and Pregnancy Disability Leave. California employers covered by the California Family Rights Act and the new Parent Leave Act are required to post this new revised notice starting April 1. The new Parent Leave Act is a narrowly tailored California leave law that took effect last year. Both the CFRA and the NPLA provide 12 weeks of unpaid job-protected leave to bond with a newborn child or a child placed with the employee for adoption or foster care. The CFRA applies to employers who have 50 or more employees, and the NPLA applies to employers who have less than 50 employees but have at least 20. While the CFRA provides additional medical leave, the NPLA does not and is limited to baby bonding leave. Effective April 1, employers with 20 to 49 employees will need to post the Family Care and Medical Leave and Pregnancy Disability Leave notice on their, in their workplace. And employers with 50 or more employees will need to replace their existing notice with a new version. The California Chamber All-in-One California and Federal Labor Law Poster, which is available at calchamberstore.com, includes the 18 state and federal employment notices every California employer must post. This includes the Family Care and Medical Leave and Pregnancy Disability Leave notice. The DWC has issued a notice of public hearing for proposed evidence-based updates to the medical treatment utilization schedule. A public hearing is scheduled for Monday, May 6, at 10 o'clock a.m., in the auditorium of the Elihu Harris Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Members of the public may review and comment on the proposed updates no later than Monday, May 6. The proposed evidence-based updates to the MTUS incorporate by reference the latest published guidelines from the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. This includes Low Back Disorders Guideline, which was ACOM March 7, 2019, and the Introduction to Workplace Mental Health Guideline, ACOM March 13, 2019. And in medical news, the Travelers Companies reported an almost 40% reduction in the use of opioids among the claims by injured construction workers. It credits the improvements to a combination of its early severity predictor model and its comprehensive pharmacy management program. The early severity predictor is the company's proprietary predictive model that helps forecast which injured employees are at higher risk of developing chronic pain. While the pharmacy management program monitors drug interactions, excessive dosing, and abuse patterns to reduce the risk of opioid dependency. Construction sites contain many health and safety risks for workers, with strains, sprains, broken bones, and head trauma among the most common employee injuries. 
All of these can lead to chronic pain, a condition that is often treated with highly addictive opioids. In fact, roughly half of all workers' compensation claims related to the construction industry that are submitted to travelers involve opioid prescriptions. Travelers' nurses and claims professionals work closely with at-risk injured employees identified by the Early Severity Predictor Model and their physicians. This is to develop an aggressive sports medicine-like treatment regimen, which often includes physical therapy and other interventions to prevent acute pain from becoming chronic. This approach is particularly significant for the construction industry, where travelers claim data shows that injured workers who suffer from chronic pain can be out of work for as much as 50% longer than those in other industries. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Minukian, Langeman. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.